are the poor in spirit. Congratulations. Good news for you because the kingdom of heaven. Bible open and your electronic device set to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Uh, last week we intended to preach on the Beatitudes that Christ delivers in the Sermon on the Mount. We had every intention of preaching on the first four and uh, we didn't quite make it so uh, we're going to try to finish that this morning. And so we begin looking at the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you live any length of time, you will have sorrow in your life. If you experience any of the grandeur of life, any of the beauty and nobility of life, you will also experience the depths of life. You will not have to look for sorrow. You will not have to chase after sorrow. It will come to you. And it will come to you sometimes in an abundance that is overwhelming. There are times when grief will become such a dominant reality in your heart that you will think to yourself that you will never laugh again. The tears will flow so quickly and so often that you do not think you will ever see the world again without the blur through which you now look at things. Sorrow will come to you. Grief will be yours. And you will learn to mourn. But Jesus said, when you are filled with sorrow and your heart is broken, when you are grieving, when there is pain in your heart, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those of you who have traveled through the deep darkness of life, who have spent not days, weeks, or months, but have spent years with the oppressive weight and burden of depression. Know that in the midst of it all, when all is dark and heavy and oppressive, you know that sometimes the only thing you had to hang on to was the promise of Christ, that someday it would be over. And someday you would be comforted. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. And grieving, mourning comes to us in many ways and many levels. There is a peculiar mourning that comes to us when we start to recognize our sinfulness and when our rebellion against God is made known to us in a way that is unmistakable and undeniable. 
and we start to realize that our sin is not just some small foible on the margins of our existence, but rather sin has taken hold of the very foundations of our life, there is a kind of grieving that happens at that moment. It happened to David, who looking out across the balcony saw Bathsheba bathing. Now understand Bathsheba was not a stupid woman. She knew the king could see her. I have no doubt but that she had often tried to arrange things so that her charms would be made known to the king. And David, seeing her, desired her, called for her, and took her. And then when they were about to be found out, he called Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, home, that he might somehow take, shall we say, the credit for what was happening. He refused to cooperate in that sense, and so David sent him into the front lines of battle where Uriah was sure to be killed. And when word came back that Uriah had been slain in battle, then David Bathsheba, observing just the niceties of a period of mourning, then became husband and wife and thought they had gotten away with it. God, because he loved David too much to leave him there, sent Nathan the prophet to David. And when Nathan shows up, he says, King David, I want to ask you a question. There were two men. One was rich. He had herds and flocks. He had wealth beyond measure. He couldn't even count the number of sheep and cattle that he had. And there was a poor man in the same city who had a little pet lamb. And he would feed it and he would, he would give it something to drink and he would hold this lamb. And this little lamb had grown up with his, with his children and he was a, a household pet and he loved that little lamb. But one day a traveler came to visit the rich man and the rich man, in order to entertain the traveler, did not want to diminish his flocks or his herd at at all and so he went to the poor man and he said I'm taking your lamb and he took that little lamb from the poor man killed it and served it to his guest King David became indignant as all of us are how dare he how dare the rich impose himself upon the poor how dare the one percent take advantage of the 99 percent we are so sensitive and astute enough to know that this is unmitigated wrong david stood up and said that man deserves to die he must pay the price and nathan said to david you are that man Suddenly King David was king no longer, but rather he was a sinner stripped of all pride, laid bare to the world, naked to the righteousness of God. Suddenly David realized that his sin that he thought he could hide was public not just known to a theoretical God out there somewhere, but known to God Almighty, creator of the universe, and known to the prophet of God. Suddenly, David realized that his sin was no small thing to be covered up, but it was the governing reality in his life, and David was struck at that moment.
Oh, we hear the sorrow filling the voice of David as he writes in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Oh, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You see, when you start to grieve over the sin in your life, that sin becomes the monstrous reality, not just a part, but it becomes the reality that redefines the entirety of your life and who you are. David came to grieve and to mourn over his sin. Why? Because he was ashamed. Nathan, the prophet of God, had shown him up to be the hypocrite. David, so proud of his regal authority, so taken with the pomp and the circumstance of office. David, who stood before the people as a great leader. David, who had restored the nation and brought it to prosperity. David, who had extended the boundaries of the nation. David, who was accounted a great king, was now seen to be a great sinner. And all that he had ever written about God being his shepherd, all that he had ever written about God taking care of him, all he had ever written about his confidence and hope in God was shown to be a sham. His hypocrisy was put on display. And David was ashamed of himself. And he broke into grieving over his sin. Oh, at least he had enough honor left and enough sense of truth left that shame could drive him to his knees. Let me point out to you that Nathan went to David because God sent him. God loved David the sinner. Incredibly, God loved David. And he sent his prophet to shake David out of his sin. But the path to repentance had to travel through sorrow and grief over his sin. David grieved because he was devastated. Like most of us, he thought you could take sin and put it in a part of your life. Here's the little shoebox. It's called sin. It's not very big because my sins aren't very big. But that's where my sins are, and it's in the shoebox over here. Now, over here now, in this compartment of my life, I'm a wonderful person, and this is who I am. And that sin over there, I just visit every now and then. I take the sin out of the box just once in a while. I enjoy the hidden, the pervasive, the habitual sin just from time time to time, but it's in the shoebox over there, and you'll never see it. I keep it hidden away. And in a moment of incredible grace and mercy, God took the shoebox, opened it up, and dumped it out so that David could see what it really was. He was devastated to see that sin come to rest upon him. Oh, imagine for a moment standing stripped before the world, sin clinging to your body like dirt clinging to sweat. And the whole world knowing that which you thought you could hide. David stood in that moment. But another man stood in that moment. 
For Jesus stood stripped before the world, discouraging the spittle, clinging to his body like dirt sticking to blood. And he took the shame that belongs to us. And incredibly, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we will not stand before him when we have faith in Christ washed in the blood of the Lamb. We will not stand before the judgment seat of the Father clothed in our sins, but rather the righteousness of Christ will have been draped upon our shoulders and it will surround us and it will cover us. And when the Father sees us, he will see the righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus took the grief, the sorrow, and the shame of our sin for us. You see, David came to understand that that sin redefined everything. It wasn't, I'm a great person, I'm a great person, little bit of sin, now I'm a great person again. But it is, I'm traveling through life, and every time I sin, it becomes a flood that covers my whole life. That's why later on in Psalm 51, he would write, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Don't think for a moment that he's talking about the procreative act, and somehow David's mother sinned. It is rather David saying, From the beginning I see that I was a sinner. From the moment of my conception, this sin in my life has stained me past, present, future, and all that I am is a sinner before a righteous God. That's all that I am. David grieved for his sin because he was confronted with the vast gulf lying between his heart and the will of God. And most of the world doesn't care about that. Most of the world, if they think about it at all, doesn't think it matters. Most of the world would rather talk more about me and my needs and you've got to understand my situation and my circumstances. But in this moment, when Nathan said, you are the man, David realized none of my excuses count. All that matters is the holy, righteous will of God for my life. And there's such an infinite gap between who I am and who God designed me to be. David grieved. He was ashamed of his life. He realized there was nothing he could do to take away the sin. Not all the religion in the world could take the sin out of his life. David writes, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So David came to know the grief, the mourning over sin in his life. But beloved, there are too many people who are living in the grief and in the shame and in the guilt needlessly because God so loved you that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, puts their faith in him, will not perish 
but will have everlasting life. Don't you understand that God shows and demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And if you know your sin deeply this morning, if that sin is pressing upon your mind and your heart this morning, if you've been reduced to grief and sorrow because of your sin this morning, if that sin is so overwhelming that you are burdened down with the guilt and the shame, thank and praise God that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, convicting you of sin, bringing to your mind and your consciousness, bringing you to, to embrace the reality that you are a sinner before God. That's the grace of God at work by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You see, there is a godly sorrow. There's a godly sorrow that leads us to the Savior to confess Him and to plead for forgiveness. And He is always faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is a tremendous promise. When Jesus says, are you sad and sin sick this morning? Blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. Blessed are you who mourn, for the kingdom of God is all about turning sorrow into joy. And blessed are you who mourn, because the kingdom of God is taking from you the burden and the weight that is paralyzing you, that is killing you, and giving you new life by the grace of God in Christ. Blessed are you when you mourn over your sin. For by faith in Christ, you will be comforted. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. You thought that you had to be good enough to counterbalance your sin and you realize you can't do it. And there's a godly sorrow. God takes away the sin. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts not our thoughts. Come, let us reason together. For though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as wool, says the Lord. This is good news. This is terrific news that the heart locked in grief over sin is healed and restored and comforted. And there is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's great news. But grief will find you in other ways, too. There is the grief that comes to us for shattered dreams and hopes that have gone unmet. The prophet Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, and the reason for that is that he is um, thought to be, and uh, so uh, we take it as the author of the book of Lamentations. That's just a big word to say the book of weeping, the book of crying, the book of sorrow, the book of grief. And among the other things that he says in that book of Lamentations is this, and, and you've, you've got to have the, 
the picture in your mind that's set up in the scripture of sitting at the gate of Jerusalem, Jerusalem that has been devastated, Jerusalem that has been destroyed, Jerusalem that has uh, had its population evacuated and now it is an empty city, a shallow ruin, a, a, just a shadow of its former self and Jeremiah sitting at the city gate weeping. And this is what he says, is it nothing to you, all ye who pass by? Behold, is there any sorrow like my sorrow? Oh, how many people in the course of their life have sat at the gates of shattered dreams, a promotion that was not only denied, but permanently withdrawn, a career that was launched with great aspiration and hope that has become just a routine, mindless grind. A life that started out with all the exuberancy of youth, thinking there was no, no barrier that I could not bound across and there was, there was no, no obstacle that I could not meet. And now is a life lived just trying to get through it. Oh, there are so many lives that are sitting at the gates surrounded by a darkness that will not go away. And a sadness so deep it doesn't even have a name anymore. And a heartache that is so piercing that you just want it to stop. And you cry out, all ye who pass by, you're acting like nothing's going on in my life. You're acting like I'm not hurting here. You're acting like it doesn't matter, all you who pass by. Is it nothing to you that I'm hurting and I'm in pain here? Is it nothing to you? Look, this is my sorrow. Does anyone have a sorrow like this? Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Blessed are you who weep at the pain of your lives, for I don't know how and I don't know when. I only know that Jesus will lift you up into the bright sunshine of his presence. It is something to Jesus that you sorrow that deeply. There is the grief that comes to us because of loss. God designed us to love each other. That's one of the ways we declare the love of God in this world is by the way we love one another. In fact, the world is supposed to know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ by the way that we love one another. He has so created the heart that we can invest ourselves in another human being and just have our lives intertwined together so that the two become one flesh. But when the circle is broken, when you've said goodbye to the dearest on earth, there's a hole there. There's an emptiness there. 
There's a pain there. To love deeply is to grieve deeply. To have loved so strongly and so completely that your whole life has been wrapped up in that person. When they are gone, you will grieve and your heart will be broken. It's the other side of love. We are not to live in denial. We're not to pretend it hasn't happened. We are not to, to think, is that well, I'll get over it. We're not even to tell each other, oh, well, we're all in heaven. He's in a better place, and isn't that wonderful? For God designed our hearts to grieve. As the psalmist said, I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. But good news for you, you will be comforted. Does Jesus care? Oh, yes, he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. He was walking along the way. He was, he was approaching a city. The name of the city was Nain. And as he came to that city, out from the gates came a funeral procession. They were carrying a young man, and behind him walked his mother. She was a widow. And her only son, now dead, and she walked to bury him. Her only son, her only source of life, income, resources, companionship, comfort, all gone. Her son carried out and with him all of her love, the love of a mother's heart. And as he was carried out, Jesus went over and there before the widow of Nain. He touched the young man, raised him from the dead to demonstrate the overwhelming power of God to conquer the grave. Oh, you may mourn now, but you will be comforted. Jairus was a rich uh, man. He was a ruler, a man of influence, and he came up to Jesus. He said, Jesus, my daughter, my little girl is sick. You've got to come heal her. Come on, Jesus, heal my daughter. And, and Jesus said, fine. And as he made his way through the crowd, there was another woman, and she was there in the crowd. She'd been sick for over a decade. Nobody could cure her. She had one of those afflictions nobody wanted to be near. But she pushed her way through the crowd thinking if I can just touch the hem of the garment of Christ, I'll be healed. And so she reached out. She touched his garment and Jesus stopped and he said, wait a minute, who touched me? The disciples said, are you nuts? Actually, they said it better than that. Jesus, are you crazy? There's nothing but people around you and every one of them's touched you. He says, no, but when somebody touches me by faith, I know it. Who was it? This woman came up to him and she said, I did. And it's one of the most interesting verses in the Bible. It's the only time Jesus does this. He looks at her and he says, My daughter, your faith has made you well. Jairus said, Come heal my daughter, the daughter of a rich, influential man. Jesus said, Jairus, this is my daughter. This woman that you avoided in the marketplace, this woman that no one would talk to, this woman who's been sick for years, this woman that all of you said, hey, it's her fault, she must have done something really, really bad to suffer like this. This woman, this is my daughter, Jairus, and I love her the way you love yours. And so they made their way to the home of Jairus. His daughter had already died. Jesus went in and lifted her up out of her deathbed. Because there is hope in Jesus Christ, there's victory over death, and those who mourn will be comforted. 
Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus. They said, Jesus, your friend Lazarus is sick. He's awfully sick. You've got to come now. Jesus tarried until Lazarus was dead. And when he went, the sisters came up to him. They said, Jesus, if only you'd been here. If you hadn't delayed, if you'd come, you could have kept him from dying. Jesus said, ladies, don't you know about the resurrection? They said, yes, but that's later, isn't it? Jesus said, no, in point of fact, I am the resurrection and the life. And he went to the tomb. And there, surrounded by people weeping and wailing because of their grief, and Jesus seeing this sorrow that knew no hope, he wept for them, and he wept for his friend Lazarus, and he wept for the loss of his friend. But then he said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus walked out of the tomb because those who mourn will be comforted, and death is defeated and is no more. Oh, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have died so you won't grieve like others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died in the faith. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord because Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The Apostle John was given this vision. He says, I, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice coming from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Death is swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so to those who mourn, that deep, painful grief deep in the heart, good news you will be comforted. What does that mean for us? It means have the courage to grieve. Have the courage to go through sadness and sorrow, knowing that Jesus Christ is no stranger to our suffering and our pain does not catch him unawares. It means knowing that there is hope beyond the grief. Some of you remember Jeff and Ellen Hunt. 
Jeff had, uh, was the chairman of our deacons at one time. But I think it was about 25 years ago, Ellen was diagnosed with a blood cancer that took her life very, very quickly. And I remember being with Jeff in the hospital as the decision had, made, had been made. No more extraordinary measures. Let time take its course. And we waited together. We talked about many things, but one of the things we said to each other was that this is what we signed up for in marriage. We signed up for the sadness and for the grief and the loss and the heartbreak. Unafraid of the grief, because that's what it means to love somebody unafraid to grieve. Simeon was a man who went to the temple every day. He grew old going to the temple. And one day, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus into the temple, and Simeon saw the little baby, and he went over and he took the baby. He said, you know, this is Messiah. I can die happy now. But then he turned to Mary, and he said, to her, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. It's what you signed up for. Because of Jesus, though, we come unafraid to the grave. We are unafraid to stand beside the grave. We come not with resignation, we do not come with a meaningless grief, but we come with a surpassing hope. For at the grave we know that life is precious. It's at the graveside that we cleared our calendars to be together. It's at the graveside that we canceled meetings so we could be with family. It's at the graveside that we held hands more often. It's at the graveside that we hugged more quickly, that we laughed and we cried together more deeply. It was at the graveside that life became real and what it ought to be. Oh, we come to the graveside unafraid because there we know what death really is, a defeated foe. Life precious, every moment golden. It is appointed to a man once to die and then comes the judgment. If life is so brief and so precious, why would we spend a single instant of it in, in, in hatred or bigotry or bitterness or resentment? It's at the graveside that we experience the hope of Jesus Christ. For it is there that we know that death does not have the last word. But Jesus Christ is the last word. Secured by the blood of the Lamb, we are comforted even by the grave. And so blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now there's a couple of ways to take that. You can take that as law. If you take it as a law, then you're saying, well, I, I should go grieve. 
I, I, I need to manufacture grief. I need to manufacture a sadness. And, and so I'll, I'll put on sackcloth and ashes, and I'll, I'll go around unkempt, and everybody will think that I'm, I'm, I'm really somebody special because I'm, I'm just grieving all the time. Folks, you don't have to go find grief. It will find you. And the godly sorrow over, over sin is a work of the grace of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can take it as law, or you can take the Beatitudes as grace, that when the sorrow comes, you're blessed because you will be comforted by the power of God. Make no mistake about it. This Beatitude is pointless without Jesus Christ. This beatitude is a wondrously beautiful hope in Jesus Christ. For it is Jesus who said, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. In life, sorrow and grief will come to you. You will know loss and bereavement. And when the Spirit of God shows you your sins, you will come to know the grace of a godly sorrow. But blessed are those who mourn with a sorrow given by God. For they shall be comforted with the power of grace. And your hearts will know in a deeper way just how much the Father loves you. Will you bow with me in prayer? Thank you for loving us so much, Father, that you have sent us your Son to save us from our sin and have sent us your Spirit to comfort us in all our sorrow. Give us the strength and the courage to trust you, even in the midst of sorrow, that our grief would be turned for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close our service and the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart and lays upon your your heart, a decision you need to make for Christ, respond quickly and obediently and share it with his body. Let's stand together. If you're in your hymnal, uh, number seven.